No, I think what it shows about Dan is Dan can do anything. And uh, when he was on Saturday Night Live, he did the best characters anybody's ever done on that show. I don't care who. Well, that's now, a lot. From, from, from 15 years. I don't know. My feeling about Dan is that he can do anything, but he is, uh, it's like working with Rommel on peyote, working with, uh, working with him uh, as a director. That's he's a he's nuts, man. He's, he's out there. And he's out there generally as an artist. He's a true visionary and a true artist. How and was I, he as a director? Did you like Not me? very good. Oh. No. <laughs> he, he, was, he was sweet. He was uh, giving. He was uh, tough. Asleep. He was... Uh, Asleep. <laughs> well, we were all asleep. We worked many nights, but uh, he was uh, very, very giving and forgiving. I think. Everybody, welcome back to a brand new episode of Not a Bomb Podcast. This is the podcast where we go back and talk about the movies that bomb theatrically, or maybe the critics didn't like. Brad, we're going back to the '90s, specifically 1991, the year that gave us Stone Cold. And uh, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty excited about this. I, I am too. It was a revisit for me from a childhood HBO film. So you want to ready to tackle this one? You want to tell everybody what we're going to talk about tonight? Yeah, we're talking about 1991's horror comedy with a question mark, uh, Nothing But Trouble. Yes. And so when when you talk about this film, if if you pay close attention to the Internet, there's one name that will come up on a regular basis specifically about this film. And Brad and I have been following him for, for many, many years. And I've, I've said this over and over again. We actually gave his book away. When, when was it, Brad? Like a year or two ago? Uh, it was for, um, was it uh, memoirs? Chase. Memoirs. Yeah. Yeah. Memoirs, memoirs of Invisible, Invisible Man. Man. Yep. So it, look, if we're going to talk about nothing but trouble, we had to get this person on the show. <laughs> so we beg and pleaded and I'm, I'm super excited to have film critic from the aisle seat. And let me make sure I get this right. Mike, Mike McGranahan. 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 Okay. It's confusing because there's a silent G in there that <laughs> some of the members of the family who came to America dropped that and some did not. Oh, and I ended up in the lineage that did not drop that second G. So it always confuses people. I get McGranigan a lot, but it's McGranahan. Okay, awesome. Yeah, I butcher every last name I come across. I'm terrible at it, but um, mine, mine is a hard name. <laughs> no, it's he screws mine up, and mine's relatively <laughs> easy. So Anderson, I got that one fine. Anderson. Yeah, I had to. It's I had to like practice. <laughs> yep. So a little background about you. You are a member of the Critics Choice Association and the Online Film Critics Society. Mm -hmm. I know you from your website, The Aisle Seat. I think um, you've also showed up on radio stations for Sunbury Broadcasting Corporation. And yes. uh, you had, and, and this is just going back to memory banks, because I think the last time we talked to, when Rotten Tomatoes was doing a show, you were also one of the hosts on there as well, right? I was one of the regular webcam critics on the Rotten Tomato show. Yeah, back when current TV was a cable channel. <laughs> wow. The late great current TV. Yeah. And and my favorite thing about you is outside of the website, you've had two books. The first one was straight up blatant, 
which is a, a fantastic, it's, I guess the best way to describe it is sort of your experiences as a movie critic and talking about some films, but also your experiences as a film critic, right? Right. And then the one, uh, which is another one of my favorites, and we actually gave a copy of, or a few copies of, of this one away a year ago, but it's My Year of Chevy, One Guy's Journey Through the Filmography of Chevy Chase. And both these books are on amazon.com. Uh, we'll mm-hmm. put links and everything on the website and also the show notes so that people can go get it. Uh, I, I, I'm going to start with the first question right out of the gate. Okay. What is the fascination with Chevy Chase? Um, there's something about his sense of humor. I, I was a kid when he really hit, I have this vivid memory in 1975 of my father coming down to the breakfast table on Sunday morning and saying, wow, they had this amazing new show on NBC late last night. And there was this guy who came out and did the intro and fell down and he was really funny and uh, that was sort of my introduction to Chevy Chase. And then uh, Cable came along a few years later and I saw Foul Play on HBO and loved that. And at the time, NBC would run reruns of the original Saturday Night Live in primetime. So I started to catch up with them. And uh, Chevy, to me, has just always been the funniest person in the world. There's something about his humor, the way he mixes intelligence and kind of goofiness at the same time, not many people can do that well. And he really does it, I think, in a quite genius way. So I, I've been a fan of his forever. And even in his terrible movies, he makes me laugh. Yeah, I, I got to I gotta be honest. It is rare that you meet somebody. I mean, I have that same fascination with Jackie Chan. So I totally get it. Mm-hmm. But it's always interesting yeah. when, when you have somebody who gets a hold of it. It always starts probably in childhood where... You run across something, it totally changes your perception of TV, film, whatever. And especially over yeah. time, as you follow their filmography, you end up championing sort of the highs and lows across the board. And um, I, I love that passion you have. I, I love the book, Chevy, that um, My Year of Thank Chevy you. as well. It's it's really, it's fast <laughs> to get through, but I've actually read a couple of sections a, a few times because every time I will go back and visit one of his films, I always go back to look at your your take of it. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. It was fun to write. I, I got to say, too, The Isle Seat, if anybody has not checked it out, it is probably my favorite website to go to for film reviews. There are very few people I agree with, like more than 80%. I would say we're on the same page. Now, a couple of times this year, we've not been on the same page. Skinnamarink. Skinnamarink being one of those. <laughs> um, but usually when we have somebody on, we ask them a few questions to sort of level set, call it, you know, your Rorschach test. But Brad and I just want to ask some general questions so that everybody can get to know you because we've known you for a little bit. And um, just n- reading your reviews on the aisle seat, I think gets a really good indication of what you like, um, what kind of film tropes um, don't bother you, which ones that do, what are some of your favorite films. But we're gonna we're gonna try and and do a little bit of that within five questions. So I'm gonna start with the first one. And some people think this is the easiest question. Other people find it super hard. So, what is your favorite movie of all time? Fletch. Oh boy. Nice. Perfect. With with Chevy Chase. Now now having said that, I would kind of tie it with Star Wars because I saw Star Wars at age nine, and it literally changed my life. I was not the same child coming out of that movie as I was going in. Yeah. But in terms of things that I watch over and over and over again, Fletch is it. I love that movie. It never fails to make me laugh. If I'm flipping around the TV dial like I was yesterday and it's on, (laughs) 
I'm watching Fletch. <laughs> so is that is that the movie you've seen the most times out of everything? Probably, yeah. Yeah, I, I lost count somewhere along the way, but that's probably that's your go to the top three. Yeah. Okay. Fletch has one of my favorite movie lines of all time. The are you using the whole hand, Doc? <laughs> that's a great line. <laughs> they start seeing O River. Um, yeah. It's Troy, true. I have the yeah. next one. Go for it. <laughs> uh, what was the first movie you remember seeing in the theater? First movie I ever saw in a theater. I wish that I had a cooler answer for this. <laughs> uh, but the first one was a movie called Hey There, It's Yogi Bear, which was a feature length Yogi Bear movie back in the 1970s that my parents took me to. And uh, I had forgotten it for a long time. I, I had only remembered my second movie, which was Disney Cinderella. And then my mom was reading back through some of her journals. And there was an entry about how she took me to see hey, there, it's Yogi Bear, and it was my first time at the movies. And as soon as she said that, it all came back. I had forgotten about the movie, but as soon as she said it, I remembered them taking me to see it. So that was the first one. Have Is that one that, because um, I, I don't know if you do this, some of these early films I saw, like The Love Bug, et cetera, I've tried to track mm -hmm. them down and show them to my kids uh, at some point in their stage. Have, have you shown that one to your kids? No, I, I don't think I could convince either of them to watch that. <laughs> they would both view that as seriously uncool. Okay. Uh, all right. Well, this is this is my turn for this question. And I, I think I know this answer, or at least I know a story from your first book. But my question is, which review have you done that has gotten the most pushback from the public or that you've received maybe the most negative reaction for? Batman versus Superman. Dawn of Justice. I said in my review that I thought it was worse than Catwoman, worse than Superman 4, and worse than there were some other notoriously bad uh, superhero movie. And I honestly believed that. But as soon as that review went online, people on social media started just bombarding me for an entire weekend with name calling and insults. And people accusing me of just saying that to drive traffic to my website. But I don't do that. It was literally what I thought about the film. Uh, I, I wish I had worded it a little differently in retrospect, but that was easily the one that I got the most negative reaction to. Wow. Yeah. I, Mike I, Cash's checks for Marvel confirmed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's on Marvel the payroll. Sends those sweet checks. Yeah. <laughs> no, I love that. I mean, even even the stuff, Skinnamarink as an example, that we don't see eye to eye on, I can honestly say your your reviews, um, at least I understand why you like it and it doesn't feel like it's sensational to, you know, hey, let me let me get clicks onto the website. So I, I've always liked that about your writing, especially. Good. That's what I aim for. Hopefully people at least understand where I'm coming from, even if they don't have the same opinion. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I held off on reading your Indiana Jones thing till I saw it today. But as soon mm -hmm. as I got out of the theater, the first thing I went to do was go and read it. Um, unfortunately, we're, we're on the opposite end of that one, too. <laughs> yeah, I saw your post on it. <laughs> I get it. It's it's um, they took some risks in the storytelling and those risks will not pay off for everybody. They didn't completely pay off for me. There were some things I thought they could have done better, but I can understand the love it or hate it reaction to that movie. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Brad, you're up. All right. What is your least favorite genre of film? My least favorite genre is uh, period costume dramas because Good I pick. find a lot of them to be kind of dry and kind of slow. Now there are some that I love very much, 
but they have to be really interesting to hold my attention. If it starts to reek of masterpiece theater, they've lost me. You got to keep it really vibrant and make it so I'm feeling something. Yeah. Not just sitting there noticing the costumes and the settings, but that I'm actually drawn into the story. Yeah, that's. What are your thoughts on Barry Lyndon? Just out of curiosity. You know what? That is on my list of things to see. I have oh. never seen that. I am not the biggest Stanley Kubrick fan, to be honest with you. I find his work to be very cold and uh, very detached. <laughs> yes, and so yes, I yes, have, and yes. And some people love that and some people don't. I'm just in the category that doesn't. So I have never seen that one yet just because I can't really get motivated to to do so. But I will at some point. Awesome. All right. You got the last All one, right. Brad. Yeah. What is your favorite movie bomb that you would recommend to everybody? Uh, the one we're going to talk about today for sure. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> really? Nothing but trouble. It doesn't surprise me. So I thought you were going to say something else, but uh, we'll we'll say. What do you think he was going to say? Pootie Tang. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that would have been my second choice. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, yeah i I love the fact that anytime this movie comes up, and especially in our circle, your name gets attached to it, and <laughs> uh, and and I love that because when you find somebody who champions a film that really just didn't have an audience on its release. And I think based on your book, you talk about it. You you saw it. It's opening weekend or that Saturday, right? And it right. was wasn't a full Saturday. theater. And I think you in the book you talk about like you're the only one that was really enjoying the viewing, right? Yep, yep. I was the only one laughing consistently. There was one guy who chuckled maybe three or four times. I was practically rolling on the floor, and everybody else was dead silence. Yeah, and that I I think that pretty much. Uh, sums up the release in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah. um, Brad, why don't you take yeah. us back to 1991 and let's talk about the numbers when this thing came out and how was it received? <laughs> yeah, so release February 15th of 1991. So you could take your sweetheart on a date for Valentine's Day to see nothing but trouble uh, with a reported budget of $45 million. Mm-hmm. Oh boy. Um, yeah, we're looking at a box office return of $8.4 million. Wow. Uh, yeah. So that's all domestic, um, opening weekend. It makes, um, $3.966 million. That's good enough for eighth place. It gets be, it gets beat by some interesting films. We have the silence of lambs sleeping with the enemy, King Ralph, Home King Alone, Ralph. dances with wolves, LA story, and the never ending story part two. It got beat by Never Ending Story Part Two. It did. It did by uh, two hundred thousand dollars. Or yeah, two hundred thousand dollars. Oh my goodness. Uh, yeah. So and then the um, Rotten Tomatoes score, Troy, <laughs> twenty five <laughs> critics, and we're sitting at a twelve percent. Oh my and goodness. The audience score of a forty eight percent, and that's with about ten thousand plus reviews. So both critically and financially, this thing is a huge bomb. $45 million. When I read that number, I was flabbergasted. So I went back because uh, I, I was I, I actually thought it had done better. But when I looked at 1991, out of all of the domestic box office um, receipts, it placed 114th for that year. Mm-hmm. Do you guys remember what um, the top comedies were in 1991? Just to give a sense of like what the public was attracted to at that time oh, period. Comedy. Yeah, the number one film that year was Terminator 2: Judgment Day, okay. domestically, right? Number two was Robin Hood: Prince of Thieves. Number three was mm -hmm. a film that you talked about, um, Silence of the Lambs. You just mentioned that one. 
Mm-hmm. You don't get your first comedy until the number four spot, and um, four, five, and six are comedies. You get uh, City Slickers at number four, The Adams yeah. Family at number five, and Home Alone at number six. I was going to say Home Alone carried over from the previous year. So oh, that that's been right. My, yeah. And it's, yeah, it, it would have been in there because it was such a right? huge hit. It was still playing in summertime. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and Dances with Wolves was seven. Um, Naked Gun uh, actually came out uh, to round out number 10 spot. So yeah. super, super interesting. Well, let's, let's talk about the people that worked behind the camera and in front of the camera. So this is, I don't know, guys, would you, this is a vanity project. I think it's a passion project, passion project by Dan Aykroyd. Yeah. Um, he is the director, the writer, the star in it. And what's interesting, this is the only film that Dan Aykroyd directed. But if you look at his screenplay credits, I mean, the pedigree is, in my opinion, unmatched for specifically the eighties because yeah. he, he comes into the decade with blues brothers, um, does ghostbusters in 84, uh, spies like us in 85 dragnet in 87 ghostbusters in 89. Then he goes into the nineties with nothing but trouble and then follows that up with a film. I think it was the second movie we ever talked about. Second one. Yep. Coneheads in 93. Yeah. And the story credit also goes to his brother, Peter Aykroyd, and I found this fascinating too. Cinematography by Dean Cundy and yeah. uh, music by Michael Kamen, who was an Oscar nominee for best music original song for two Brian Adams songs. Have you ever really loved a woman from Don Juan DeMarco and uh, everything I do, I do it for you, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. I want to ask real quick about Dan Aykroyd. Before we talk to him about an actor, what do you think about him, Mike, behind the camera, in terms of screenwriter, producer? Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he's got he's done a lot of stuff behind the scenes. He's done a lot of stuff. The reputation with Dan is that he's a brilliant writer, but that he needs somebody else to help him shape it. Like the original screenplay for Ghostbusters was apparently 600 pages long or something like that, and very scientific, and Harold Ramis helped him pare it down into what we know now. Uh, as far as nothing but trouble, Dan Aykroyd wasn't supposed to direct it. He actually was not interested in directing it. He wanted somebody else to do it, and they just couldn't find anyone. And so he said, uh, I'll just do it. So he wasn't even necessarily committed to the role of, of director, which I think is why he's never done it again. He just stepped in to do it because it was the only way the movie was going to get made when they had the money available and when they had the cast available. Oh, yeah. I uh, I had read, I read something. I also, oh, yeah, go ahead, Brad. Sorry. I had read that he was also like a pretty big pushover on set. And so the, the actors were giving him a lot of ideas for their characters and he was just agreeing with it. So that's why this might be a little scattershot when it comes to some of the, the scenes is because everyone had ideas and Dan just didn't say no to anyone. Right. And when you have somebody like Chevy chase, (laughs) he's always going to come with ideas and he's always going to have things he wants to do. So uh, I'm sure that was probably the case to a great extent. Yeah, I had read that some of the directors that they approached to do this film, names like John Hughes and John Landis and everybody passed, like mm-hmm. you said. Um, I, I agree with you. I mean, if you if you the cool thing about, I guess, the age we live in is if you think about Blu-rays and all these special editions, you, you still have artists alive to kind of talk about how they made these films. And like you said, Mike, Dan is one of those that he's got tons of ideas and it seems like even Blues Brothers, I mean, it it starts out with this grand scheme 
And he always needs somebody to mm-hmm. come in and take that idea and just kind of just narrow it down into something that yeah. is going to fit the medium, right? Yeah, um, and his movies are always, except for Nothing But Trouble, I, I believe they were all co-written with someone else. Right. So, you know, that probably accounts for why Nothing But Trouble didn't ring bells for a lot of people, too, is that he was sort of left to his own devices there as opposed to having somebody come in and say, let's do this. Let's make this character a little stronger. Let's have an emotional beat here. Well, let's talk about him as an actor then. I mean, what are your thoughts on him as a performer? I love him. He's up there in that rarefied air. I mean, for me, it's Chevy Chase, Steve Martin, Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Eddie Murphy. I grew up in the 80s. Uh, late 70s, early 80s. I love those guys. Uh, Dan Aykroyd was always one of my favorites because I think he's a little bit different than everybody else. The others kind of do wackier or more overt things. Aykroyd is funny playing characters who are smart, but a little bit on the geeky side. Mm -hmm. Ghostbusters being one of them, Dr. Detroit being another. (laughs) Uh, And he's good at that fast talking thing like he did so well in Dragnet. So I think his style is a little bit different than his contemporaries. And I like that about him. What about you, Brad? Do you you have a favorite Dan Aykroyd film or is he one that? Oh, I mean, I was a Ghostbusters kid growing up. And so Ghostbusters was basically, you know, my life along with Star Wars and stuff like that. So it was like the most important film to me. But then a comedy that I think is a classic, and he plays Ray Zielinski, the auto park king, and Tommy Boy. I think it's an amazing <laughs> performance. Um, yeah, Spies Like Us is another film I, I really like. It's probably not as good as I remember, but I love it. Um, so Dan is, to me, again, like Mike said, kind of in that rarefied air because he was in Ghostbusters and a lot of other comedies that i just happen to to love so yeah and he's really good in like conids which we've already done yeah i i was shocked um the thing i've always liked about dan Aykroyd is his name outside of comedy will kind of pop up in films you don't expect so mm-hmm. when you're looking at his filmography about this time he's doing stuff like the couch trip in 88 the great outdoors in 88 caddyshack 2 in 88 my stepmother's an alien in 88 goes back to the well for Ghostbusters 2 in 89. But that same year, uh-huh. he shows up in Driving Miss Daisy. Oh, that's right. He is in Driving, Driving Miss Daisy. Daisy. Which you yeah. don't expect, but he's fantastic in it. Then, oh, man, I haven't I haven't seen this film since I saw it in the theater. Loose Cannons with Gene Hackman. Yeah. Oh, we're, we're the two people who saw it in the theater. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I knew there was somebody else out there. Yeah, I and I love Gene Hackman um, because about that time period, mm-hmm. he was doing movies like The Package and Narrow Margin, and mm-hmm. I, I was just in love with the guy. And you come across that one, you're like, what an odd movie. Um, <laughs> then does this one, and then the same year, he does My Girl in 91. Yeah. Oh, he's really good in My Girl, too. Yeah, and then does Sneakers, the Robert Redford film, in 92. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chaplin in 92 and then Coneheads in 93. His filmography I've always found is super interesting. And what I I like about him is he's not afraid to just, you know, dip his toes in other genres. And even, I think, I think he's a really good actor. I mean, across the board. He is. Yeah, he definitely is. And, And again, I, you know, talking about loose cannons, I think that's a perfect example because that was Dan Aykroyd doing a part that was clearly intended for somebody like Robin Williams. Yeah. And it was it was completely the opposite of Dan Aykroyd's style of comedy. And I think that's why that movie didn't work. He does make me laugh in it. He's like Chevy. I'll laugh at him in anything, whether the movie's good or not. But I think that was a case where he played completely against his strengths and tried to do something that is way out of his wheelhouse. 
and it just didn't work. And plus the movie is seriously weird. It is weird. <laughs> and the whole concept of that movie is bizarre. But I like, I like, I really like people who, who will do that, who will just go, Hey, this yeah. probably is in my wheelhouse. I'm going to give it a run. And you end up getting something like loose cannons. I get, I mean, Gene Hackman signed up for it and he's, he, I mean, right. I, <laughs> who knows what he was thinking? <laughs> um, then we get Chevy Chase again, sort of a interesting background. So you want you want to give us a little bit of what's going on with Chevy Chase's career, late '80s going into the '90s when this film came out. Yeah, I mean Chevy had a great run in the '80s: Caddyshack, Vacation, Fletch, Christmas Vacation, uh, Spies Like Us. They were all hits. Funny Farm was not a hit, but that is arguably his best film in a traditional sense. And by the '90s. There was a new generation of comedians coming in from Saturday Night Live. You had Adam Sandler, Mike Myers, Chris Farley, and they were kind of taking over the movies at the box office. They were the ones who were pulling audiences in. So Chevy suddenly was finding himself with movies like Memoirs of an Invisible Man, which I think is an incredibly underrated film and nothing but trouble. And they were coming up short at the box office because he was kind of yesterday's news in terms of comedy. And, uh, you know, in the case of um, memoirs, that opened two weeks after Wayne's World. And Wayne's World was a surprise hit. Nobody thought that movie was going to make $100 million. And it just really showed the generational split there in terms of comedy. Now, at the same time, Robert Altman had approached Chevy to play the character of Griffin Mills in The Player. Oh, And Chevy wanted – this is something that not a lot of people know – And uh, Chevy really wanted to do it, and his agents talked him out of it and said, the character is too unlikable. This will hurt your career. So he turned it down. It went to Tim Robbins, who was amazing at it. Yeah. And the movie was a big success. So I think that if he had listened to his instincts and gone with the player, he might have had a very different career in the 90s. So Funny Farm, that was the first film he did under his production company, right? Cornelius Productions? Yes. Yes. Was that the only one that came out of that? Um, or did did it fold up shortly after Funny Farm? I believe Memoirs was as well. Oh, that one was? Okay. I, I, I might be mistaken on that. I know Chevy, I mean, I know he was a producer on it. I don't think right. he had his name in the credits. But I know that he originated that that project and helped to pull it all together. So Yeah, I, I'm with you. Funny Farm is one that I think everybody, I mean, don't get me wrong. Fletch, all of those are, are fantastic. But mm-hmm. Funny Farm is one that I love to go back and revisit. It it does follow, I guess, that vacation trope of here's a guy that's obsessed with this is exactly how I th- want things to play out. And they don't. Um, and there's, <laughs> yes. a, there's a lot of comedy there. But uh, that may be one we have to revisit, Brad, because I really. Yeah, it's been a while since I've seen it. And I don't remember liking it too much originally. I, I always saw it released with spies like us on these like two pack DVDs and stuff. And, and to me, yeah, that's a great combination here. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And you know, it, it really shows Chevy's, I mean, he was working in funny farm with George Roy Hill, the guy who directed yeah. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kid and the sting and smile, and, you know, all these great movies. And then you look at Fletch, he was, um, uh, that was Michael Ritchie. He was the one who directed Smile. Uh, it, you know, two really well-known, acclaimed directors. And I think that they knew how to utilize his comedy. And in other times, he worked with directors who were just like, do whatever you want, or didn't know how to help him craft a performance that was more than just Chevy's routine. 
And uh, that kind of, if you look at his career, his best films oftentimes were directed by somebody stronger, like a George Roy Hill or a Michael Ritchie or someone like that. No, that's a good point. So you think the secret ingredient to a Chevy Chase film is to get a director that is going to get the right performance out of him. Yeah, because he's a guy who's notorious for coming in and having a million ideas. Mm -hmm. And nobody knows what Chevy can do better than Chevy. I mean, he he is in total command of his gift comedically. But you got to work that into a story. So if you look at something like Modern Problems, for example, where he had a novice filmmaker who kind of said, I'll point the camera at you and you do what you want. The movie really doesn't work because it's not Chevy integrating his stuff into a story. Whereas you look at Fletch, there are moments where he's very, very absurd and silly in that movie. And yet it works in the context because there's a story that's being followed and Fletch is made into a character that's beyond Chevy Chase. No, that's a good point. I like that. Is, uh, is the stories of him being like a notorious asshole on set, are those true? Because I've always heard he's pretty tough to work with. You know, it's funny. It depends on who you talk to. He certainly has had a lot of stories around him. Uh, that are negative. Uh, the community incident when he was on that show being mm -hmm. one of the most notorious. Yep. That said, I have also heard really, really nice things about him. And in fact, when I wrote My Year of Chevy, I interviewed Stephen Kessler, the man who directed Vegas Vacation, who had nothing but kind words to say about Chevy and just raved about him and how much Chevy worked to try to make that movie funny and how he was great to everyone on the cast. Uh, he told me Beverly, Beverly D'Angelo was actually the one who was a pain <laughs> in the ass, as he put it. <laughs> so I, I think it kind of depends. You know, Chevy, I suspect, is in real life the way he is on screen. And people are probably, they think it's funny when they see it on screen. But if he's making those kinds of wise ass cracks and sarcasm and stuff like that in real life, people probably are like, wait a minute, man, what are you doing? Yeah. It's I, just Chevy being Chevy. I was going to say, it, it feels to me like... The, the the one drawback to Chevy Chase sometimes is character development or character nuance may not be in there because he's always playing Chevy Chase to a certain degree. But I don't think, yeah. he, to your point, I don't think he turns that off in his personal life. So people right. probably have a hard time understanding his sarcasm versus seriousness or sincerity and everything else. And if, if you if you don't know him or you can't pick up on it, I'm sure that drives you crazy to some degree. Yeah. Yeah. What's funny on the screen probably comes off as rude in real life. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think we get, we're not even done there in terms of what I would say comedic talent. We've got another big name in this film, Mr. John Candy mm -hmm. himself. Uh, yeah. Brad, I want to start with you. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on, on Mr. Candy? Dude, I love John Candy so much. Like <laughs> not having John Candy in our lives today is kind of still makes me sad. Like, you know, as a Star Wars kid, like Spaceballs was a mainstay planes, trains, the great outdoors, who's Harry crown, like all these just amazing films, uncle buck home. Like the character he plays in home alone is one of the most genuinely <laughs> nice people like in film history. And you just feel like that's John candy in real life. He just seemed like the best dude. And then I went through like a really big, like JFK phase in my life. I don't know why, <laughs> but like him and JFK is also like amazing. So no, man, John Candy is is perfect. And, um, you know, even like his role as kind of like the uh, baseball announcer and rookie of the year, like he's so like hitting a ball, like he just he shouldn't be doing films like that, but he makes them so much better. 
Um, yeah, I forget. He did like Rookie of the Year, then Cool Runnings in the same year. And again, mm-hmm. both of those movies are infinitely better because John Candy's in them. So he's probably in my pantheon of like people that I would like like to hang out with and just be around because he seems like the nicest guy ever. Yeah. Do you, I mean, where do you land on John Mike? I loved him. And one of the saddest things about his death for me was that I don't think we had really even scratched the surface of what he could do. And Brad is correct. He was in JFK and he was terrific in it. And I think he could have done dramatic roles and had the kind of career like Robin Williams had going back and forth. Yeah. You know, Mrs. Doubtfire and Dead Poet Society, Goodwill Hunting and Patch Adams. And uh, he was taken from us too soon. But yeah, he he was a one of a kind. And, and I think the first movie I ever saw him in was Stripes. Oh, yeah. That's and I right. remember, you know, I went to that movie. My dad took me. I was only 13. I went to that movie for Bill Murray. It's like, wow, who is this other guy? He's amazing. I love still to this day watching old episodes of SCTV. I think mm-hmm. he's absolutely brilliant um, in, yeah. in those in a film Again, another guy is doing some really interesting stuff around the same time period of Nothing But Trouble, because if this was 91, JFK was that same year. So mm-hmm. if you look at just what he was doing in 91, he did this one, JFK Delirious. And another one I don't think it's talked about enough because I it, again, it was one I saw in the theater and it was like, yep. wow, I, I really like John Candy, but it was only the lonely. Only mm-hmm. the lonely. Yeah. Which he is fantastic in. And again, it's another one that everybody gravitates to planes, trains, automobiles. Is that a Chris Columbus film? It's only the only Chris Columbus. Uh, was it? It might be. I think it might be. I I think he at least wrote it. I, he yeah. may have directed it too. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's so good. Um, it's another one we need to talk about. And then last but certainly not least, we have uh, really an, an actress is starting to get more and more popular, Demi Moore. And around this time mm-hmm. period, in 88, she did Seventh Sign, We're No Angels in 89. 1990 was huge for her. <laughs> she does Ghost. Yeah. Then Nothing But Trouble. Um, the same year, she does a film uh, with Bruce Willis, Mortal Thoughts, and mm-hmm. Butcher's Wife. And then, again, with Tom Cruise in 1992, A Few Good Men. And from there on, we get stuff like uh, Indecent Proposal, What Disclosure, the erotic thrillers, and, and she's starring in there. Um, and yeah, striptease GI Jane. Yeah. Are you guys Demi Moore fans? Yeah, definitely. I mean, she's, she's talented and, and I don't think the movies always knew what to do with her. Uh, She was one of those actresses who had a couple of sexy roles early on and sort of got pigeonholed in that, but she mentioned mortal thoughts. And uh, that was a movie I saw in the theater back in the nineties. And she is amazing in that film. Yes, she is. You You really see what a good dramatic actress she is. Uh, but they didn't give her a lot of great parts like that. Ghost is another example. Uh, she got stuck in stuff like The Butcher's Wife, which was just junk and not funny. So I, I think she's really talented. They just didn't know what to do with her all the time. Yeah, I agree. 100%. What about you, Brad? You Yeah, I was going to kind of go along the same way. Like, I, I think her flame burned really bright and really fast because, like, she got pigeonholed as, like, the really hot woman. Mm-hmm. And, like... Well, no doubt about it. She is a smoke show, but like she's a way better actress than like people give her credit for. Um, and yeah, I just, she just never, I, I don't know. Like GI Jane should have been that movie. And uh, what else? Uh, you know, I don't know. I just don't she think she ever had that one film that kind of put her on top. I think she kind of deserved that, but she just never really got there. And I, I don't, I can't figure out why, but she should have been bigger. Yeah. Like she should have yeah. been way bigger. 
I, I agree. I mean, I think she came out strong in the early nineties and it, and it could be just a selection of what she decided to star in. Um, she, she obviously was very bankable from a studio perspective, so she had no problem finding work, but you're always waiting for that one role that all of a sudden would transcend her into some kind of notoriety or even Academy talk or something of that nature. But I agree with you. Mortal thoughts is another one of the early nineties of these films. People kind of forget about that had just Mm -hmm. these really amazing performances and and mortal thoughts is, is one of the better, like uh, modern neo noir films that uh, you can, you can pick out too. Oh, Uh, about last night. I think that's my favorite Demi Moore. Okay. (laughs) That's a good one. That is a good one. Last but not least, I'm just going to put in here for Brad. Um, we do get a surprise from Digital Underground. Yeah, we um, do. Yes. And I yes. think Tupac Shakur is in here, too. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. This is his first film. All right. Well, let's yep. let's talk a little bit more about production and development. And I, I just want to confirm with you, Mike. I, I read this, and this blew my mind. But do you want to talk about the inception of where the idea for Nothing But Trouble came from? The sure. story? Sure. Yeah. The story goes that Dan Aykroyd and his brother went to see Hellraiser in a theater in Times Square, and they were captivated by the audience screaming and being afraid, but also laughing the next minute. And Aykroyd apparently said, I want to make a horror comedy. I want to make something that elicits both of those things at the same time. And so he tapped into a personal incident he had had where he blew through a stop sign in a small town and was pulled over and hauled in front of the judge. He based the movie on, I'm from Pennsylvania, there's a a town here called Centralia where there's been a mine fire burning since the 1950s or 1960s, something like that. Smoke randomly rises up from the ground. Nobody lives there anymore. And he was inspired by that and came up with this concept of the town of Vulcanvania and then using that story of, well, you know, what if somebody was pulled over for a minor infraction and then put in this house of horror? So he thought, okay, you know, the house can be scary, the characters can be funny, and we'll get that kind of Hellraiser vibe. So that was Who's laughing at Hellraiser? I'm sorry, but who was laughing at the movie Hellraiser? Hellraiser's pretty. I love Hellraiser, but yeah, it's pretty gross. I don't really laugh too much at it. But yeah. I think it was nervous laughter. Okay, maybe maybe that is. I'm it. sure it ha- it's that whole jump scare. Something happens, you can't forget it. And the only way, if you're not screaming, yeah. then you're just releasing it through like some kind of laughter, right? Yeah, I'm not really slapping my right. knee too much during Hellraiser, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, which I think so. Moving out to the East Coast now, I had heard about Centralia because you and I aren't too far from each other. And right. uh, I think that also became like inspiration for the Silent Hill video game, um, which mm-hmm. of course became the movie, et cetera. It's, it's such an eerie place. Uh, it the, really is. Yeah. The other thing um, to, I guess, make note of is that we, we talked about, you know, the reception of this when this was released, it actually won some awards. So here we go. In, in 1992, at the 12th annual Golden Raspberry Awards, Aykroyd received the Razzie Award for Worst Supporting Actor. And it also took home Worst Picture at the 1991 Stinkers Bad Movie Awards. So it, I, I guess it took home Blasphemy. some gold. Yeah. <laughs> well, Mike, let me, let me just ask you real quick. So 1991, this thing comes out, you know, right around Valentine's Day. Why did it, why did it bomb? Why didn't it? connect with everybody. You, you mentioned a little bit about that. You've got a new set of comedians coming out 
and maybe it's mm-hmm. sort of the old guard just not connecting with the audience. Do you think that's it? Or was there something else going on that this just, it, it, it couldn't find an audience? Yeah, I think the other part of it was that Warner Brothers didn't have confidence in it. The movie's original title was Valkenvania, and it was supposed to come out at Christmas time in 1990. And they changed the title to Nothing But Trouble, which is completely generic. It's a, it's a completely unmemorable title, despite the fact that Demi Moore tells Chevy Chase's character, you're nothing but trouble in the movie. It's just not memorable, certainly not as memorable as Valkenvania. But then they dumped it on Valentine's Day. You know, which is the wrong time to release a dark comedy like that. It opened the same time that all those other big movies were out. Some of the awards contenders, other comedies. Uh, it's a, a time people want to go to the movies to see a romantic comedy or a romantic drama, not a movie about a guy in a house of horrors who falls into a machine called Mr. Bone Stripper. So, I, you know, they, they just Warner Brothers basically botched it. And, and the other thing um a colleague of mine, Brian Collins, who's a fantastic uh, writer, covers horror movies, Horror Movie a Day website. He did it a Q&A a few years ago with Dean Cundy, the uh, mm-hmm. cinematographer. And it was about a different movie. But Brian is as big a Nothing But Trouble fan as I am. And he couldn't resist the chance to slip this question in about it to Dean Cundy, who said, the studio screwed us. We shot that movie in a scope widescreen aspect ratio and Warner Brothers cut it down to a flat aspect ratio. And he felt that that killed the ambiance of the movie and also the comedy that change in aspect ratio. He said, you know, we shot it one way and they cut it a different way. So that may have influenced people's reaction to it as well. The studio just fundamentally tinkered with the actual physical style that you would see the movie in the theater. Is there, do you know of anything that's being like left on the cutting room floor as well? Or was this pretty close to what the original story runtime and everything else that Aykroyd had envisioned? Pretty much every movie, you know, when they do the initial cut, it's always a couple hours long. Um, Where you really see it is the ending. I am convinced that the ending of this movie was reshot. No one has ever acknowledged that. Aykroyd has never talked about it. Chevy has never talked about it. But if you look at the last scene of that movie, and it ends with Chevy Chase's character running through a wall, like in a Warner Brothers cartoon, and leaving a Chevy chase size hole in the wall, that is so tonally out of place with everything else in the film. So I am convinced that there's an original ending for Nothing But Trouble somewhere out there. Yeah. What we saw is not what Dan Aykroyd intended. That's why I asked that question is because I I didn't know if there's something missing in that third act or towards the end, because it it Mm -hmm. does feel like there's a shift or there's something missing for you to go into that comedy slant. But I mean, it, it, I don't know. It just, it also feels like, um, I don't, I don't think, like you said, the studio knew what to do with it and how much tinkering actually went on with like test screenings, because a lot of times when we cover movies at bomb, you always get this story of, well, it tested this way. And then went back and did a bunch of reshoots as a result of that, uh, the comic yeah. cards and everything else. And I, I couldn't find anything about that. So I didn't know if that influenced like where they ended up with the ending as well, but they don't talk about it much. You know, Dan Aykroyd and Chevy both did 10 or 15 minute interviews for the recent shout factory special yeah. edition release. But for years, Aykroyd would not talk about it. And I know of one critic or film writer who asked him about it during a phone interview and claims that Aykroyd just slammed the phone down. Oh, 
Really? So this is not a movie that the people involved have really been super eager to discuss up until recently. Okay. Well, I am eager to discuss it because I have, I know where you land on it. I have no <laughs> yeah. idea what Brad thinks of this film. I'm really interested about that. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah, so me too. Let's take a quick break and when we come back. We're going to dive right back into um, our discussion on nothing but trouble. So stay tuned. Uh, may I help you? Uh, I'd like two of those, please. Hot dogs? Yes, sir. And three of those, and one of those, and five bars of these, and a cup of that nice hot liquid. Uh, coffee. Uh, coming right up. Oh, and two bags of those peculiar white coffee material. Uh, you mean our crunchy popcorn. Uh, uh, shall I wrap that for you, sir? Oh, that's all right. My saucer's just outside. <laughs> they come from miles to enjoy our intermission. Please! Uh, please, please help! What happened was true. They're crazy! You gotta make a stop! Some of the victims didn't have time to scream. Others weren't as lucky. Now, Bryanston Pictures presents every grisly detail of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the most bizarre and brutal series of crimes in America, and without a doubt, the most realistic shocker ever filmed. Sally, I hear something. Stop! Stop! Even if one of them survives, what will be left after the Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Rated R. Under 17, not admitted without parent. We're back. Uh, you know what, Mike? I'm not going to start with you. We usually start with the guest, but I'm dying. I'm just dying to know where Brad lands on this one. So Me I'm going to I'm going to let him go first. Brad, I know you've seen this film before, but what what do you think about this movie now? Sitting sitting down to revisit it on this nice special edition uh, Blu-ray that Shop Factory put out. Yeah, that's a very it's a very nice edition of the film. Um, I think for me it's one of the most bizarre films I have ever seen in my life. And I think my major problem with it is it's got every kind of comedy that you could want. It's got slapstick comedy. It's got dry comedy. It's got Pratt falls. It's got the Looney Tunes bit at the end. It's got all this comedy. It's got like, you know, men dressing up as women comedy, like every type of comedy that you could think of is in this film. And there are moments where it is a funny film. Like I think Chevy chase has some really funny monotone one-liners in this, um, that are pretty funny, um, uh, because it's Chevy chase and his delivery is top notch. Um, the, 
the stuff that Dan Aykroyd is doing in this film is on another level. Like I have no <laughs> idea what is going on. Um, this is just one of the most bizarre films I've ever seen. Um, but it's hard to get past the people who are in it. Like you get to see John Candy, you can see Debbie Moore, you get to see mm-hmm. um, Chevy Chase, obviously. And then you get like the Brazilianaire brother, sister who are like, are they, aren't they like in a relationship <laughs> together, baby? Um, so there's right. that going on. There's just so, there's so much going on. Like they are just throwing everything at the wall to see what sticks. Um, and then all of a sudden the digital underground shows up and I'm like, okay, I like this film. Um, <laughs> it's almost like, and, and Mike, no offense, it's almost critic proof because there's like, there's so much stuff going on. It's, it's yeah. like, I don't know if I like it or not because there are so many aspects of this film that I hate, but there's also a lot of aspects of this film that I really love. And it's mostly the comedy that hits for me. Um, but there's just so many like weird, the, the, the Bobo and whatever kids out the in the rebel. junkyard, uh, mm-hmm. the, you know, the roller coaster of death that takes you to the bone strip stripper, ripper bone ripper. It just, there's just so much stuff going on that I like, I feel like this, like this idea was way too grand for like 93 minutes. Um, like, is it, above hell like is this thing supposed is this place above hell because at one point in time is his you know is a walking stick goes through and like fire comes out um i don't know man like i've been thinking about it all day it's just one of those films that i i don't know if i cannot recommend it to someone because of like how weird it is um yeah i i don't know how i feel about it i really don't like i there are aspects of this that I really, really like. And there is like 40 minutes in here where I am just mouth open because it's so weird. So I don't know. I don't know how I feel to be perfectly honest with you. So the I, dinner table scene. Uh, yes. The hot dog scene. Like <laughs> those are the whitest hot dogs I've ever seen in my entire life. And they've got the things at the end and he's shaking it around. And Oh my God. I, oh my God. And the nose, the penis nose. Yes, I mean, a lot uh, of yes, people don't some catch that the first time. At oh, some point how could you not time, catch that the first time? <laughs> but am I wrong? Like in my notes, I'm like, that's a penis nose. But at other times, it's not a penis nose. So was he just doing that to like help no, people? Like, I, I don't know. I saw it clear as day in Blu-ray. It's there. I mean, the whole but time. Not, I don't think it is every time. I think there's like two different noses. Really? The close-up one is the one that really yeah. exemplifies it. Mm-hmm. I, I do have a question. So you talk about the comedy, um, as as Mike said. I mean, this was designed as a horror comedy. Do you do you find it to have horrific elements or horror tropes within it, or is, does that just fall to the wayside and you feel like the comedy takes center stage in this thing? Well, it's like Texas Chainsaw Massacre two in a way. Like the John Candy woman character is obviously kind of gone off to like Leatherface in a way. Um, even down to like being a mute and not really saying anything. And I don't know if that's just John Candy being like, no, I'm not, ta- I'm not talking in a woman voice. You're not getting me to do that. Cause as much as I love him, he seems like he is not having a great time in this film. It, he looks pretty upset through most of it. Um, but yeah, if you look at it in the lens of like, like they're taking inspiration from Texas chainsaw and more so Texas chainsaw two. It, it kind of works for me, but man, I don't know. The, the, there's nothing really horrific in it. 
I mean, some of the imagery is weird, but I wouldn't call it horrifying. Okay. Well, Mike, this is this is your favorite bomb to recommend to people. How how do you talk about this? How do you review it? Do, is it is it critic proof? Do you think, or I mean, how how do you tackle this thing? Hmm. Yeah, maybe. I mean, that's an interesting way to put it. The funny thing is that when I first started championing championing this movie. I got a lot of, you're crazy, that movie's terrible. And it seems to have found an audience over the years. Now, whenever I tweet about it, I get this reaction of, oh, I love that movie. Or that movie was so funny, I watched it a million times growing up. So I think its its reputation has grown a little bit. But uh, for me, uh, speaking to what Brad was saying, it's not a predictable comedy. You don't know what's going to happen from one minute to the next. They're falling through trap doors. There's the bone stripper. There's John Candy in a dress, which, by the way, Brad is correct. Uh, John Candy did not want to play Eldona. He did not want to do drag. He thought it was cheap. Dan Aykroyd convinced him to do it. Uh, so you have that. You have Digital Underground just coming out of nowhere. And as a film critic, as somebody who sees 250, 300 movies a year, if something comes along that I don't know what's going to happen next, I'm going to be more receptive to that than I am to a movie where I know every beat that's going to happen within the first 10 minutes because you can see them setting up the formula. Now, having said that, uh, nothing but trouble really have to look at it as a horror movie. It has the classic elements of horror. You have the people getting lost in a deserted location. You have, you know, the, the creepy guys out in the, in the back, which are kind of like the Hannibal's and the Hills have eyes or the, uh, what were they in uh, wrong turn? You know, those kind of inbred creatures. Uh, you know, you have all these different horror elements. You have bones, Mr. Bone Stripper, a torture device that predates Saw by like a decade. <laughs> That's true. You yeah. later see a whole genre of horror movies designed around torture traps. So Dan Aykroyd was definitely incorporating a lot of the classic elements of horror and then using them in a comedic way. And I think that if you look at the movie from that standpoint, it works better than if you go in thinking this is just going to be a comedy because it's got Chevy Chase and Dan Aykroyd and John Candy. I'll, I'll say this. I always liked the film. I didn't, I don't think I appreciated it until I discovered Rob Zombie's House of a Thousand Corpses. And, mm -hmm. and I don't, so I've always equated this film as if Disney had bought the rights to Rob Zombie's House of a Thousand Corpses and decided they were going to do a remake or they yeah. were going to create a ride out of it, right? They, th no more Haunted Mansion. We're doing something off of House of a Thousand Corpses at Disneyland. I, I feel like this would be the end product of it. Um, and I've, I've always thought it's so untraditional but it wasn't until later when people would go back to the well, like Rob Zombie, and and do this hillbilly gothic horror and and really amp up the comedy, et cetera, that I started to appreciate Nothing But Trouble a little bit more. And mm -hmm. the more I watch it now, it really has this Rocky Horror Picture Show vibe to it. That yeah. to me, it 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 is almost one of the best cult films that you could get together. And I think I think Brad, your response is absolutely right. Like just watching this thing almost, and I I can't figure it out. Like I don't know what to do. 
I think that's the best thing about it, to be quite honest. Um, it has <laughs> Tim Burton-esque horror elements like, again, take the Saw thing and go, we'll give it a Tim Burton spin and you would get Mr. Bone Stripper more or less complete with bones just being spit out. Right. Um, yeah, there's a lot of Beetlejuice in this for sure. There it can, So it's that little tidbit of information you told me about Dean Cundy and how they shot it one way, but you know, they end up showing it a different way. The production design in terms of the junkyard, the house, even some of the map paintings and stuff they use. I don't know what you guys think. I think it's incredibly and gloriously creepy. Like there, there's yeah. just this vibe to it that I can't get enough of. I think the set design is actually pretty spectacular in this thing. Yeah, and I think it's that's what they No, go ahead, Mike. I was just gonna say it's, it's brilliant, and they actually hauled in. They emptied like multiple junkyards around the country and had all this junk shipped into California for their set, and that that helps. It's creepy looking. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I'm guessing that's where the majority of the budget went to, is the set design. I mean, because it. Mm-hmm. that setting is pretty striking. I, I'm sure that in salaries, I mean, you yeah, still have yeah, some iconic greats here that, that are, you know, pulling in some change for being on there. Um, I don't know if you guys have a favorite, I hands down. My favorite scene is the dinner scene. Um, when, <laughs> when he, definitely pretty, the most memorable, when he takes <laughs> the, uh, pretty much the motor, motor oil dispenser and puts it on the Hawaiian punch can, and ask people like, how about some Hawaiian punch? And you all of a sudden see those hot dogs that they're serving to everybody. And uh, I love John Candy in drag trying to get condiments from this little train that's going around the dinner table. John Candy may not have wanted to play that role. Um, Eldona, which is the mute granddaughter. But I think every time he's in it, in that role, he's a scene stealer. But that, that mm-hmm. dinner scene is to me one of the darkest, funniest WTF moments um, of the 90s out there. And I don't think it gets enough love how weird that scene is. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know if you have anything that tops that scene that is your favorite. but <laughs> <laughs> It's kind of hard. I mean, that, that is like the most memorable scene by far. Yeah. Or like, so also I think the, because they kind of tease it and they tease it and they tease it. But like, the first time you're kind of introduced to Volkenheiser and he's like coming down from the ceiling and the books are on the, on his uh, stand and like he's behind those books and it's like the reveal just takes forever and forever and forever. Like that one sticks in my mind too, just because you're like, okay, show me the, show me the guy's face, show me the face. Um, and then you finally get the reveal and you're like, this guy is repulsive. And it, you know, that's a definite scene for me as well. Uh, Dan Aykroyd, it provides this creepiness as the judge and he goes all in on that character. Uh, yeah, I love it. Uh, I, I'm going to, I'm going to say something. You probably won't like this, Mike. So here's my thing. Um, I love Dan Aykroyd. I think he's a highlight. I love John Candy. I think what kind of surprises me, however, is the lack of Chevy chase in this film. He mm-hmm. isn't doing what he typically does in a Chevy Chase film. I think everybody kind of runs over him in terms of the comedic uh, and the zaniness aspect of it. He, to me, he gets one good moment when he's doing his wedding vows. And you f- yeah. you get a little bit of like, oh, there's Chevy. <laughs> he showed up for that scene. 
but I really feel like he's lifeless for the rest of the film. And I think if they had somebody else playing Chris Thorne, this movie would have been better personally. Cause I don't think he's, I don't, so you put Bill Murray in that role. Do you think it's a better film? I, I think so. Or if, if Chevy chase, I mean, yeah, John Candy may not have wanted to do that role, but you know, he's John Candy and I think he's really funny in that role. I get the feeling Chevy Chase did this as like, yeah, Danny wants me in this film. I'm going to do it. But he doesn't want to be in the film. Of all the people, my vibe is he's the one that really doesn't want to be there. And I don't know if that's true or not behind the scenes. I just feel like his role is pretty lifeless. Yeah, he gave an interview. There was a, a biographer who wrote his authorized biography. And he said that he did it as a favorite Aykroyd. Okay. It wasn't really something he was all that thrilled about. Now, on the Shout Factory Blu-ray, it's a completely different story. He he seems to have come to terms with it and gushes about it. But uh, apparently, he didn't wasn't really into it. But I think you have a very good point there, which is that he's essentially forced into playing the straight man in this movie. Everybody yeah. else is crazy. And when you have Chevy Chase, you don't make him the straight man. You make him among the crazy people or give him something to do. So... Uh, that's a pretty good point there, I think. Yeah, I, I don't think, and it could be the script. The script may not give him enough to do something, but I think everybody else got ample time to kind of show off their comedic chops, but the script doesn't really do him any service, and he doesn't yeah. get a chance to do Chevy Chase, except for that one moment, which I think is is super funny. But um, to me, the comedy comes about from everything that's happening to him or around him, and and even these little scenes, I mean you don't know what you're in store for the minute they fall through this hole and land into like uh, a pool of dog squeaky toys. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which I chuckle every time that happens, but I remember seeing it the first time, like what in the heck is going on? And I, I kind of mm -hmm. think that's one of the best things about the film is look, if you've never seen this thing, I guarantee you, you probably have never seen anything like it. Um, and, and then even then if you, I guess people discovering it now, it may actually run a little bit better because of the Rob Zombies of the world and more, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre remakes. Yeah. I don't know what they're on 9, 10, 11. I don't know if you guys think that people coming to this film maybe appreciate it more than when it came out in the early 90s because of where horror has gone. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Choi, this, this film does have one of my favorite tropes of all time. What's that? It's the incredibly hot woman. So let's put glasses on her. And then when she takes them off, our lead character is like, oh, like, dude, it is a 1991 Demi Moore. Glasses are not. You're going to notice her immediately. Come on. Come on. She takes them off in the in the elevator. And he's just like, oh, look at this. I'm like, come on, bro. Uh, yes. There. Do you guys think it takes a little bit to get to the good stuff? I I, I feel like even as many times as I've seen this, I'm, I'm kind of like, hurry up. Let's we get it. Chevy Chase is a, you know, stock guy, whatever. Um, it doesn't for He's me. He's a financial publicist, Troy. Sorry, financial publicist. It really doesn't hit its stride until they show up at the uh, junkyard, in my opinion. Yeah, the moment I fell in love with it was the moment you described where they fall through the floor and land in the squeaky dog toys. Because that was the mm -hmm. moment I knew that this movie was going to give me something I had never seen before. But I do think that they kind of have to drag out the beginning a little bit just so you can see that this guy's life is very structured and you know he lives in a fancy apartment and drives a fancy car so it plays in that contrast of being in this dingy old house and 
things like that. But yeah, once they get there to Vulcanvania and in front of the judge, that's when the movie hits its stride. Yeah. Well, I, so I'm going to give Mr. Aykroyd some notes here. Um, I think <laughs> that they should have started off with the Daniel Baldwin car full of people shown that in the first act and shown them mm-hmm. kind of being tortured and all that stuff. And then it kind of builds up some tension. So once you know, I kind of know that our characters are getting there, that this torture is coming. Um, I don't know. I just think that makes it to be a better film. And also like Demi Moore lives in that building too. She can afford someone to drive her around. Like she doesn't need <laughs> this car ride so bad, but maybe, you know, maybe she's down for the chase. So she uh, wants to take a car ride with him. Well, that, that that's very interesting. So if, if I were giving Mr. A- uh, Mr. Ackroyd notes, I mean, I, I do think this is a fun film, but if I were like, man, if, if I could go back in time and just say, look, we could make a couple of, of changes and all of a sudden this is going to be like one of the biggest films in 1991, I would probably lose Demi Moore. And if you're going to keep Chevy Chase, then give him a Bill Murray, but give him somebody that he can play off of from a comedic perspective. What this is missing, I think, in my opinion, from a lead, everything else around the Chevy Chase and Demi Moore uh, couple I think is really good. I think Chevy mm-hmm. Chase is, is probably the issue. Demi Moore is okay in it. But if you had found two people that could pull off the Abbott and Costello like chemistry or relationship, I think this would have been a huge hit and everybody would love this film. Like what it's missing to be that mega popular is just your leads playing off of each other and having a little bit more chemistry and even their energy matching the zaniness that's going around them. I mean, my mm-hmm. my two favorite horror comedies of all time are Tucker and Dale versus Evil and Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. But it really comes down to those two leads. You have the chemistry that I think is unmatched. And if you're if you're going to do horror comedy of that level, like to me that that's what this film's missing. But um, mm-hmm. I, do you have any like notes for Mr. Aykroyd, or would you rewrite it a different way? <laughs> That's that's a really astute observation, because the rumor is that Chevy Chase and Demi Moore did not like each other. I could set, see that, which may yeah. account for their lack of chemistry. And I do. Yeah, when they're, agree when they're with kissing, you there. no chemistry, you don't feel anything. There's no there's none of that. If it had that, um, you know, Hepburn and Tracy kind of yeah. back and forth or moonlighting, that kind of banter or that kind of chemistry between the leads, it would have been a lot better. But you can kind of feel that they don't really care for each other. And that comes across a little bit. So, yeah, I mean, you know, maybe obviously at that point, they weren't going to say no to Chevy Chase because he was still considered a big star at the time. So, you know, maybe a little difference in the casting, you know, my directorial note would be get them together in a room first and see if they have chemistry. That's a good point. Yeah. I, I, even, even if you just replace Demi Moore with somebody that is going to go toe to toe with that Chris Thorne character, Vina Davis. Oh, oh my God. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I like that. She'd have been perfect. She would have been amazing. I agree a thousand percent. That's now that you say that that's where they messed up on the casting. Oh man. You, you, you should be directing films, Mike, not (laughs) writing (laughs) reviews about them. That's awesome. Well, any other notes or uh, tidbits of information about the, the making of it? I mean, Mike, if, if you were giving the sales pitch, I mean, like why should people go and either revisit this if they didn't like it the first time mm-hmm. or if they never never even heard about it, why should they be watching this film? I think it's ahead of its time. 
uh, you know, as reflected in the fact that its reputation has grown over the years. And again, I I think that it's a movie that takes chances. You know, Dan Aykroyd was I mean, I, I always have a grudge against King Ralph because they opened the same weekend and King Ralph made twice what Nothing But Trouble did. I saw King Ralph and it was fine. But King Ralph is very much a predictable kind of comedy. They set up the situation, you know everything that's going to happen within the first half hour, and then you sit there and you wait for the movie to hit all those beats. With Nothing But Trouble, you don't know what's going to happen two minutes from now. And so the movie is constantly surprising you and constantly catching you off guard. It'll be completely silly one minute, and then the next minute Chevy Chase is in this machine that's going to strip his skin off and shoot his bones out the back. So you just don't know. And and I think that is a very underappreciated quality about the film, that it's just you, you don't know. It's going to constantly catch you off guard. I like it. What about you, Brad? I mean, you, you got any of the final notes or digital underground? <laughs> <laughs> They're in this movie. Yes. Don't forget. And, 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 you know, that's possibly my favorite moment in the film. Uh, that was the movie that got me into digital underground. But of course, Humpty Hump and Shock G were the same person, correct? Yes. So yes. there's a scene in the movie when they're, they're performing same song where it goes from Humpty Hump to Shock G. And so they have a body double on the set and they cut it in, in just such a way so that you can't tell that it's the same person doing both. And if you look at the band, there are shots where one member is missing. You'll see Humpty Hump up front, but you mm -hmm. don't see shock g so it's one of those things if you know digital underground it's just kind of a fun little easter egg i uh i love that sequence i love that dan Aykroyd gets his organ out and jumps into it which dan Aykroyd yeah. is a huge music appreciate appreciation person lover you know he's blues brothers my goodness um yeah. house of blues all of that stuff but uh I, I think again it's something that's so unexpected and for whatever reason, it just works in this thing. I think I think that's the part that gives mm -hmm. me that Rocky Horror Picture Show vibe is you just get this musical number that comes out of another. And then all of a sudden you have, you know, the judge playing along with him. And, uh, of course, his his little solo jam is pretty cool, too. But, yeah, I love it. Yeah. It's so 90s. And, and, also, and also Taylor Negron is amazing in this film. I think. Yeah. Yeah. The late great. Yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay. Well, I think it's time for the question then. Um, I will kick it over to you, Mike. So we always do just a, a quick validation. Obviously this mm -hmm. thing, when it came out in the theaters, it didn't do so hot both with the audience and the critics, but we asked the question, you know, is nothing but trouble from 1991? Is it a bomb? Yes or no? No, no. And I think that, uh, 10, 20 years from now, its reputation is going to be even more grown than it is today. So I'm going to say, no, it's not a bomb. It's a, uh, it's a hand grenade <laughs> in 91. It's not going to go off for a little bit yet, but when it's going to go off, it's going to be big. Oh my God. I love that. Three years doing this and nobody's ever put that out there. That's fantastic. All right, Brad, I, you, <sighs> I know you've been on the fence on this one. Where are you going to land from a verdict perspective? So thinking about it, it's like, you have to see this because it's unlike anything you'll ever see. So I guess by default, it's not a bomb because I'm telling people they have to see it. So, yeah. Okay. Hey, we'll, we'll take that one for the win. Yeah, I, take it. We're going to make yeah. it unanimous. It is uh, definitely not a bomb. I think it's just one of the strangest things to come out of the 90s. And I, I appreciate that. 
I find that it's not the train wreck that critics made it out to be um, early, in the early 90s. And right. um, honestly, I think there's so much to like about the film based in production design, performances, et cetera, that I don't know why people didn't latch on to that in the beginning. Um, here's the thing. It doesn't necessarily make me laugh out loud, but it makes me laugh throughout the entire film. And as many times mm-hmm. as I sit down to watch it, I'm always finding something that I didn't pick up on either in the background or performance, a, a glance uh, when they say something. Dan Aykroyd does his fast talking spiel with that character and it'll take you a, probably a couple of viewings mm-hmm. to understand what he's saying in every sentence. But um, I don't know. The, the only downside to me is it does come to a halt when it is Chevy Chase and Demi Moore. But luckily, that doesn't happen too often. And the film is very uh, smart in trying to get to the next, like, what the heck is going on moment. So um, there's enough weird stuff to keep it entertaining. And I really wish people would go back and revisit this thing. Or if you have never seen it, go watch it, especially if you like horror comedies. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Go see it. Take a chance on it. It's only 93 minutes or 92 minutes, whatever. Uh, I I have to ask you as a film critic, I, I, my family was talking about this today. We really miss the 90 minute film. Um, I think lately these two and a half hour blockbusters, they're, they're getting to me (laughs) and it's starting to, it's starting to, I, I don't know, influence even me liking a film. If I like it and go, yeah, after two and a half hours, I, I don't know if, if, if that's having a negative effect on me. Not many movies can sustain the length. And certainly with, with Hollywood making all these expensive blockbusters like superhero movies and sequels, they're trying to give people more bang for their buck. But I think, too, we, we see it in other areas of film. And this might be a semi-controversial statement, but I sort of feel like once filmmakers get to a certain point, they forget how to make a 90-minute movie. You know, Quentin Tarantino hasn't made a 90-minute movie since Reservoir Dogs. Martin Scorsese hasn't made a 90 minute movie since I believe King of Comedy or After Hours in the 80s. Um, you know, David Fincher is not going to make a movie that's 90 minutes. These guys, they get success. Christopher and Nolan, I think Christopher that Nolan they, loves the Christopher three hour Nolan, time. Yeah. yeah, his new one, Oppenheimer's three hours. So I, I think they get to a point where they get kind of in love or a little bit self-indulgent. And not all of these movies deserve that running time. There are certainly some great three hour movies or two and a half hour movies, but yeah, a lot of them, Fast 10, you know, did not need to be two and a half hours long. Yeah, and and I want to ask you, because this has been an ongoing debate, I think, for Brad, myself, um, some friends we have at other podcasts, et cetera. The movie industry is hurting right now, especially with some of these large um, budget films like Indiana Jones. Mm-hmm. I, I think the rumor now is it the flash. Yeah. The flash um, flash. Yeah. What do you, what do you expect if you were to kind of get your magic eight ball out? What do you think the rest of the year looks like? Are we going to see more box office misses than hits going forward? Or do you think this is just an anomaly and, it, and it's going to get better as the year goes on? I think it's the product of a long time coming, you know, back in the eighties, Critics complained about what was called the high concept movie, you know, Top Gun, Beverly Hills Cop, these movies that had very simple premises, but that were catchy. And it was like, well, this is going to be the death of movies. They're all going downhill. And then in the 90s, we had the boom of independent film, you know, it really kind of defined that decade. So I, I think we're kind of there now. Hollywood, these franchise films have made a lot of money. They helped the theaters survive after COVID by getting people back. But I think people are getting tired of it. I think they're getting tired of the same old thing. 
And this ties into nothing but trouble. You know, that was a movie that you didn't know what you were going to get. You walk into something now and you know, I mean, you walk into The Flash, and I'm in the minority of people who actually really like that movie. You know it's going to have a CGI finale. You know there's going to be the cameos from this person and that person. So we go in and we know what to expect. And I think that audiences are getting tired of that. And it's probably in the next few years going to come back around where more original films, at least this is my hope, more original films start to dominate the landscape again. Like we grew up with in the 80s. You think you think we'll get a resurgence of independent filmmakers hitting the scene the way that we did in the 90s in the next few years? I would love to see that happen because there's so many talented people out there and there are so many interesting independent films being made. And right now, people just really aren't going to see them. And a lot of them are getting shipped off to streaming services. So I would like to see a resurgence in that. So my fingers are crossed. I'm trying to be optimistic and think that's the way it's going to go. Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest with you. In the last two days, uh, and and what's interesting is I I always use uh, my kids as sort of a barometer test. So mm-hmm. it was like, uh, okay, Cameron, what do you want to see? We've got Asteroid City, and then there's the new Indiana Jones. Now, mind you, Indiana Jones that was like one of his favorite films growing up, and mm-hmm. he automatically got more excited about the Wes Anderson film than he did the new Indiana Jones. And so we saw that one first. We both loved it, and then we saw Indiana Jones today, and and he he said he was really fighting to stay awake. Um, and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm wondering if that just commentary is kind of what general audiences are feeling now at the box office, where it's, I can stay home with streaming, and either, if, if it's going to be the same old stuff, well, great, I didn't, I didn't pay the $15 movie ticket, I caught it on streaming. Or I'm going to run across something that probably is taking more chances because of the budget was smaller, et cetera. So I go to the movie theaters. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering mm-hmm. if that's what's happening right now with the general populace, like you just said. That could be. I think everyone, especially in Hollywood, is kind of waiting to see how it shakes out. But, you know, it, Indiana Jones is a perfect example. Uh, I went and saw that with my dad, who's 80 years old. And uh, he took me to see the original in 81. And it blew my mind. I had never seen anything like that. Yeah. It was original. I fell in love with the character. And it was the same thing with Ghostbusters, E.T., Back to the Future. I came out of those movies feeling euphoric, like I had discovered something new and wonderful. And you come out of Indiana Jones 5, and, and I liked it, but I didn't have that same feeling. You know, And we're never going to get that feeling back if all we get are sequels and reboots and spinoffs and stuff like that. It's got to come down at some point to people coming up with good original ideas again and getting people excited. Is there a movie that's been announced or coming up in the next six months or the rest of the year that you are excited about or a couple of films that you're, you're highly anticipating? Yeah, believe it or not. I mean, it is based on something else, but I I did not expect them to take the approach they're taking with Barbie. It looks really smart and really interesting. And like, it maybe has a point of view to it. I haven't seen it yet, but I'm hoping that that's the case. Uh, that's definitely one that I'm really looking forward to. Okay. What? No, you didn't say Mission Impossible. I'm. It, come on, man. Yeah, that too. But I mean, there again, I'm looking forward to it. But we also know what we're going to get because we've had what four, five other Mission Impossible movies. I know, but it's Tom so, Cruise, and he's trying to out Jackie Chan, Jackie Chan. Come on. <laughs> yeah, I, I am excited for that. Right. And, and he's the last true movie star. I mean, he really is somebody who's out there making movies that 
get people to want to go see them on the big screen and giving them something different every time. So we need more Tom Cruises. Uh, I agree. I, we need to, we need more Tom Cruise and Don Lee. Um, I'm excited. Don Lee's having a lot of, uh, success over in South Korea. So yeah. Yeah. He's doing some interesting stuff, isn't he? I, I love it. He's those, those are my two favorite. The, the minute their names come up, I don't care what it is. I, I want to go see it. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad he's doing, he's got his roundup franchise. I mean, I've, I've been championing mm-hmm. the outlaws forever. I still think that's one of my favorite action films of all time, but even the arm wrestling film that he did, uh, champions, which I, I, I rave about that all the time. Um, and Brad, we got to talk about that one soon. Cause dude, I cried, I cried. I bawled so much during that movie. Yeah. He's, he's just wow. become one of my favorite actors in a short amount of time because he feels like a movie star. I mean, he owns the mm-hmm. screen and we just don't have enough of that. So I totally agree with you. Yeah. Mike, you yeah, want to need more. I agree. You want to tell everybody just real quick, all the stuff you're working on right now, where they can find you. Um, you are the best movie critic out there. Hands down. You win that award. Well, thank you. But how do people find your reviews and get more of your experience? Uh, my website is the aisle seat. <clears throat> the address is aisleseat.com, as in sitting at the aisle seat in a movie theater. And I do have reviews of the big Hollywood movies, but I have a special emphasis on the site on finding cool smaller films and indie films and things that are not getting the hype of uh, Mission Impossible or The Little Mermaid. So if if you like smaller movies, you're looking for something different. Hopefully it's a site people can go to and they'll get a movie put on their radar that they don't know that much about. So aisleseat.com. I'm also on Twitter at aisleseat and uh, love talking movies with people. So. It's, it's amazing to spend time with you. I learned so much about every film we talk about, and uh, I can't thank you enough. I know you're super busy, so taking time out of your schedule and spending time with us, it, it's an honor, man. Uh, thank you for having me, both of you. This was so much fun. Oh, I loved it. We, so I, much fun. I, I loved being here. We got to have you back. Um, guarantee we're going to do Funny yes. Farm. Awesome. Well, what do we talk Anytime. about? time. Yeah, what are we talking about next week, Brad? Oh, boy. We were talking about a... We're changing Another gears. I know that. <laughs> Another weird film. It's Darren. It's Darren Aronofsky's 2006 film. It's The Fountain. It's a epic romantic drama starring Hugh Jackman and Rachel Weisz. So yeah, that one is interesting. I remember seeing that in the theater. So and that's been my only time. Uh, I've watched it a few times. I'm really excited to talk. That's that's the type of film. I really don't want to watch unless I know I'm going to talk about it with somebody. Uh, it, it's an experience. So folks, if you have a film that you want to recommend for us to talk about one of your favorites that just didn't get any love, uh, Brad, how do they get a hold of us? Yeah, that's not a bomb pod at gmail.com or you can go to not a bomb podcast.com and hit the contact us button or his up on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And there are a few other podcasts they should listen to as well, right? Yeah, we got the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, Watch Skip Plus, which we were just with Sammy and Jose last night. We did an episode of Breaking Brad. We did From Justin to Kelly. Uh, listen to that. That will be up when you hear this. Um, yes. Yes, Mike. Have you seen that film, Mike? I have. And uh, that's another one of those movies. I'm not going to say it's a good film, but I enjoy watching it every once in a while. 
you and Jose because it's talk. not a good film, but it's interestingly bad. Uh, okay, uh, it's bad. I don't know about interesting. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we, uh, we, we did we this all, experiment all, to try and break Brad, and I think it broke some of us. Troy <laughs> was broken. Uh, we also had the VHS files, uh, Night of the Living podcast, the Mixtape podcast, and Raiders of the podcast. Yes, awesome. Well, Mike, again, thank you so much for spending time with us this evening. We'll have you back on soon. Folks, I don't know if you're listening in the morning, the afternoon, or evening. Thanks for downloading the episode. Come back next week. We're going to talk about a very strange film. And I guarantee that conversation is going to go places we don't even know where it's going to go. So uh, stay tuned and uh, go and watch Nothing But Trouble. Go revisit that thing. We'll see you later. Don't lose your head. Thank you.